Our sermon today is taken from Psalm 99. Here's the word of God. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, you are holy, holy, holy. And there is none like you. All of time is in your hand, Lord. Father, as we come before your word and learn how we may approach you worthily, I pray that you can move us by the Holy Spirit, that we may at least have a semblance of understanding of your greatness, that we may be encouraged to worship you and repent of the ways that we have unworthily lived before you. Bless your servant, Lord. May the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart be acceptable in your sight. And may through my foolishness, Lord, your glory is not tarnished, but preached and put in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Karl Marx, this relatively well-known historical figure, famously called religion the opiate of the masses, saying that essentially religion is some or some sort of organized faith in God is basically this man-made thing that is used by weak-minded people in order to cope with their powerlessness so as they don't fall into despair. So it functions basically like opium, right? Like a painkiller for life that allows us to live under the delusion of hope for a better afterlife and this contrived justification for our own existence in this life. And if we can be brutally honest about the state of religions today, I think we can see kind of where Marx is coming from. Because even people from our religion, Christianity, if you pay attention to some of the things being taught in churches today, Many of them are telling us not to worship the God of the Bible, but a God who meets our needs. And we're looking for such a God. For the guilty, it might be a therapeutic God to deal with their anxiety, a God that can give them some psychological relief, a God that can make us to silence the voices in our heads and have some sort of inner peace. And we can see this in how Worship and religious devotion becomes this endless pursuit of these experiences of catharsis, whereby we feel our hearts are warm and the weight of whatever is burdening us is lifted at our shoulders. For the poor and needy, it might be a benefactor God, a generous God who can 
promise uh, material or physical blessing in exchange for your worship. This is how there are pastors and self-proclaimed prophets who claim they have the ability to heal supernaturally and solve your problems that can have a net worth of $150 million in a country like Zimbabwe with a national GDP lower than $1,500. Or for the oppressed and lost, it might be a God of justice and of love. A God who can give us some sort of sense of significance and dignity in this world. A God that can give us a structure or purpose in life, some sort of justification for our existence, while at the same time preventing us from feeling like all the suffering and all the injustice that we've experienced is for nothing. Now, while there is some, at least, truth to all of these claims about God, it is true that God is indeed a God of peace and that He can guard our hearts and minds with a peace that surpasses understanding. And God is definitely capable of relieving us of our anxiety regarding our worldly problems. He is, of course, the author and creator of life Himself, who generously provides for us from the surpassing riches of His glory. And God is certainly the King of Kings, who by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, and who has adopted us and loves us like His children. But, friends, if we become enamored only with one or some of God's noble aspects instead of who He is as a whole, if we reduce God to some sort of crutch that helps us deal with reality, we could either have a shallow commitment to Him, such that we take Him or leave Him to the degree to which He is useful to us, or even worse, we could be militantly committed to a lesser and imaginary caricature of God that actually leads us into nowhere often ending in disappointment. Therefore, in order to prevent that, we must be reminded and have deeply internalized the most essential and definitive character of God so that our worship of God can start in the right place so we can get our core beliefs right that we might not be led astray by our natural sinful tendencies to transform God, the God of mercy, into the God at our mercy. Now, the Bible's word, the, the most frequent adjective that is used to describe God in the Bible is this word that we've been studying in this series. Holy. That the Lord is holy, holy, holy. That is where we must start. So, to conclude our short series on holiness, though there's definitely a lot more we can say, I think it might be helpful to round out this series with a psalm that specifically reflects on the worship of God's holiness. Psalm 99. Shameless plug to my sermon a couple of weeks ago. We already discussed then what being holy fundamentally means, right? It, that it fundamentally describes the distance between God and man, how God is completely different and infinitely above us. And we can notice that the uh, Psalm 99 is structured into three different sections that each reflect upon a way that uh, this holy God, who is holy other, re uh, relates to humans, all ending in a call to worship His holiness. So from these sections, we can see that the psalmist points us to at least three ways to worship God that does justice to His holiness. Our three points today, okay? Worthy worship of the holy God is done, one, 
in reverence, two, in justice, and three, intimately. Let me repeat that. Worthy worship of the holy God is done in one, reverence, two, in justice, and three, intimately. Okay, so let's turn our Bibles and observe the text closely. So the psalmist begins here his reflection in verse 1 of God's holiness with this emphatic declaration that the Lord reigns. Notice there that the word Lord is spelled in all caps in your English translations. And when you see that, you should immediately recognize that the word being used there is not some generic word for God, but it's God's personal name, Yahweh, the name that he revealed to Israel, his chosen people. So the psalmist here doesn't want to leave any doubt who sits on the throne. It's not some abstract concept of God. It's not the God of the philosophers. It's not this unknown God or God in general, but it is the God who has revealed himself in the Bible. Then we see immediately verse 1b, the psalmist starts to illustrate for us the scope of his authority. It says that the Lord sits enthroned in the cherubim. Now, if you frequently read the Old Testament, you might have encountered this word before a few times and you thought to yourself, what on earth are those? Then you might have Googled cherubim and you might have found these pictures of these cute baby angels that are chubby and harmless looking. These are certainly not what cherubim are. The cherubim actually aren't angels as you would think of them, nor are they ever called angels in the Bible at all. But they are these heavenly beings, and Ezekiel actually gives us the clearest description of them as this flaming creature with a head of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, right? Who are uh, filled with eyes and flying around, singing before the throne, and even carrying his throne. And their appearance there, although it's crazy if you think about it, are supposed to be these symbolic representations of all creatures, telling us how all creatures belong to God, that God's glory fills all the earth, and how he is truly the one above all and truly other. And if you read the designs for God's temple and the furniture that's in it, in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, for example, you see that God's residence is filled with the images of these cherubim. And they're there to remind the priests ministering that they are in God's sacred space, that they are not in a normal place, right? That they are where the holy God truly dwells. And the holiest part of God's temple is this place, appropriately named called, named the Holy of Holies, a room that only the high priest can enter, and even then only once a year. And in this room, there is only one thing, right? This golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the cover of this golden box, guess what? There are two cherubim carved there as well. That's where Israel believed God's throne was. And in Exodus 25, God um, tells Moses that God will speak to his priest and give instruction for his people from there. It is from this place that the God of the universe reigns. Now, where was God's temple, where God's throne is? in Jerusalem, a city that sits on a hill called Zion. That's why in verse 2, the psalmist proclaims that the Lord is great in Zion. 
We know from the New Testament, book of Hebrews especially, that Zion isn't ultimately a physical location like earthly Jerusalem, but earthly Jerusalem is a type to, that points towards the heavenly reality. And it actually ultimately refers to heavenly Jerusalem, which is the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, where God's people will be gathered, right? So this is us. So you see, the psalmist here wants to emphasize that the one above all has united himself with the people, the citizens of his kingdom, the people with whom God has made a covenant. And it is from there, it is from our midst, that God's kingdom reaches all the earth. So what brings, brings it to view, friends, is that the God we worship, the God that we pray to, the God whose commands and promises that we've read today in the Bible is not an ordinary thing, but he is the creator of heaven and earth. So when we go to church and to worship him, we are entering the presence of a king. Therefore, we must see it as an honor. When we pray to him, we are not praying to a normal person, but we are speaking to the Most High. So we must do it in humility and reverence. And his laws and promises aren't just generally good guidelines to follow or wishful thinking, but the actual laws and decrees of the sovereign of all creation. Therefore, they should, they should hold more authority and be observed more closely than what we or anyone else would propose to believe. In a word, the worship of this God should be done with absolute and complete reverence because his authority is absolute and his kingdom is universal. That means, therefore, as his chosen people, we are supposed to be the ones leading the people, referring to the Gentiles, people who don't know God, in what verse 3 tells us, praising his great and awesome name. Now, I want to talk about this word awesome. Right, we use this word so frequently today that it's really kind of lost the gravity of its being. Like nowadays, you know, steak can be awesome. Some shoes or a haircut can be awesome. Basically now it's just a synonym for pretty good quality. But this is not what it's talking about in the Hebrew here. Because in Hebrew, the word here is supposed to communicate something that is fear-inducing. Right? The KJV puts it as terrible, meaning producing terror. To communicate that the name of God is supposed to be something that we should never dare to disrespect. Now, I, I get that it might be hard for us to wrap our minds around how we could praise and love someone for being great while at the same time being fearful of him. Yet somehow, as children, we can intuitively understand this. Before we grow up, that our parents are just people who are trying to figure it out like everyone else. Our mom and dad was like a superhero, right? Everything they did was the best thing ever. And they could do no wrong. And we deeply love them for that. And at the same time, there is, or really should have been, an awareness that they're not our buddy. They are still mom and dad, and disrespect would be swiftly met with wrath and consequences. Right? So as kids, we intuitively know that love and fear are not mutually exclusive. And so with God, this love and fear is intensified to the maximum degree because God is so 
great and so glorious, far beyond what we could ever imagine. And the consequences of not being on His good graces is far more terrifying and costly than anything that we could bear. So it is proper for us to both magnify God and praise Him with all our hearts, to tremble and quake like the earth at His glory. Because crossing Him is really something we do not want to deal with. Now, most of us try not to think about His wrath this much because either we are aware of our imperfections and notice that we definitely have crossed God at some point, and so living under threat is just much less enjoyable, or we've become convinced that because we're Christians, God's wrath just isn't something that we should worry about anymore. But the problem is, friends, in either case, avoiding God's wrath lessens our ability to praise the greatness of His love. Because it's hard to appreciate how perfect God's righteousness is if we don't tremble at how far we are from it. It's hard to appreciate how just God is if we don't see that we too stand condemned before Him. It's hard to appreciate how infinite God's grace is if we don't understand that there is an eternal punishment that is waiting for us for our sins. It's hard to appreciate how deep God's love is if we don't realize how much we don't deserve it. This is why, friends, this worship of God must be done in reverence, giving Him all the respect, all the honor that He is due, both in why He's worthy of praise why is worthy of fear. These things are two sides of the same coin, inseparable. And if we begin to approach Him in reverence, what this will move us towards is this admiration of Him that produces an obedient heart that submits to His will. And what that looks like is point two. Worthy worship of the Holy God is done in justice. If you move to verse four, the psalmist highlights for us what is the character of the heavenly king. He says, the king in his might loves justice. Meaning what pleases the holy God, our king, is to use his power for the purpose of justice. Now, how does he use his power for the purpose of justice? We see two ways in verse four. First, it says that he establishes equity. Now, we might be thinking that what this means is something like fairness. Right? In our modern context, it implies some idea of everybody getting treated the same way. And this is definitely part of it. You know, Paul repeatedly says that in God, there is no partiality. And we can read in James that God actually condemns favoritism. In Deuteronomy, Moses says that God has, integ has integrity and is completely incorruptible, but he takes no bribes. But what does it mean for God to establish right, equity? Well, the Hebrew word for equity here actually comes from the word straight. So it's more like God set up straightness. And what this communicates is that God is the one who draws the line between what is right and wrong. He was the one who set the standard of justice. He at the same time invented the game and referees it flawlessly. He is the one who knows and established what is good because He is goodness itself. And not only does God determine what is good, but He also executes justice and righteousness in Jacob. He doesn't only make the rules, He plays by them as well. 
Now Jacob, as you might know, is the person after whom Israel, God's people, were named. So it's not talking about uh, the person, but the nation. And God executes, or the word might be uh, better translated as created, justice among them. In other words, justice and righteousness is God's SOP. And this is most clearly seen in how he treated his people and how he wanted them to treat each other. So let's first clarify this. Think a bit more about how these words are used in the Bible. First, justice. We see that in the Bible, there are two senses of this word that is used. Now, the first one might be most familiar to us, that justice is probably uh, this judicial sense, right? Again, closely related to this idea of fairness. Everyone gets what they deserve. The good are rewarded and the bad are punished. And we certainly see this everywhere in the Bible, that God hates wickedness and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's one kind of justice. Let's call that retributive justice. But if you pull out a concordance and study the sense of the word justice in the Bible, most of the time, like, like seriously, nine times out of ten in the Old Testament, it is actually referring to the second type of justice. Let's call, let's call this restorative justice. That doing justice goes a step beyond fairness. And it actually is going out and seeking the oppressed, the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, and then helping them out. It is advocating for them, making their problems your problems, and creating social structures that enable the vulnerable to perish. And let me read a psalm here that breaks this down quite clearly. Like in Psalm 146, when it says in verse 6 to 10, The Lord executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings into ruin. See? It's not just punishing and rewarding, but it's also going out and helping the vulnerable. And inseparable and closely related to this is the second term, righteousness. We would associate usually this word with something very personal, right? Like an individual or a group's disposition towards the good or moral merits. Well, it is talking about one's ethical standards. In the Bible, it talks about something more than just simply abstaining from sin. Right? Listen to how Job talks about the relationship between righteousness and justice in the Bible. From Job 29, verse 14 to 17. He says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Right? So perhaps in summary, we can think of righteousness as being this standard that of right relationships, then justice, on the other hand, being the actions that we take to create these standards. Hence, in the Bible, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the benefit of the community. It is a very much not only personal thing, but an intrapersonal thing, or at least with interpersonal um, implications. And God, 
showed his justice and righteousness to Israel when he saved them from Egypt, who were enslaved under the rule of Pharaoh when they were oppressed and needy. He then gave them his laws and endured being disrespected and disappointed by them after freeing them in order to shape them into the community that reflects his just and righteous character. And God also has gloriously freed us from our sins when we were needy, when we were his enemies, and when we were perishing. And the Lord emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and died for us on our cross for our wickedness, that we too might be a community that is living in right relationship with him and with each other. See, so it makes sense, friends, that in verse 5, in light of this, the psalmist again calls us to worship. But then he specifies that he is the Lord, our God. That he is not some impersonal God who is passively sitting in heaven, testing us, waiting the day when he can pass the verdict on whether or not our lives have been good enough for heaven. But this is God, who is above all that exists, has intervened in our misery. He intruded into our lives to save us from ourselves, from our sinful tendencies and the corrupt system of, of oppression that we have made for ourselves. Therefore, the right thing to do, friends, is to worship Him before His footstool, before His throne. Psalm 89 verse 12 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Therefore, to worship Him there is to submit to His righteous rules, to execute justice in our communities as He has done for us. Worshiping goes beyond going to church on Sunday or even praying every day, right? Because, brothers and sisters, these acts of mercy, what we would consider charity towards those who are needy and suffering, although they're not a basis for our justification, but they're not simply things that are optional and we do for extra credit. They are commanded and in a very real way worthy acts of worship to our holy God who has done the same for us. Now, I understand that hearing all this may make us nervous because in much of our lives, we, don't, we do not live in reverence to this holy God. Often the fear of God isn't in our eyes. We don't give him praise for the greatness of his name, but he is an afterthought. And let alone trying to reflect God's righteousness um, and justice in our relationships and our communities, we're still busy taking care of ourselves. So if we're really brutally honest with ourselves, our worship of the holy God so often falls short of what is worthy. And praise be to God, friends. Because this holy God is not just this demanding tyrant, but he knows our frame, that we are weak and prone to wander. And God does not just set us up for failure, but he works with us, which is point three. Worthy worship of the holy God is done intimately. Look at verses six to eight, how the psalmist communicates to us how this holy God deals with his people. And in verse 6, he mentions three heroes of the Bible to serve as an example of the relationship that we too may have with the holy God. It says Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. These are all people who God himself invited personally to have a relationship with him. 
Moses and Aaron were his priests and were the ones tasked with taking care of and entering God's sacred space with the tabernacle at this time and administering there. And God personally called Samuel in the temple to be his servant. Right? These were people who were invited to God's house to be with him. And what they all had in common is that these were all people of prayer and worship. It says that they called upon the name of the Lord. In the Bible, this phrase refers to both act of worshiping and praying to him. Because really, these two things are not separate. Because prayer is really the essence of our worship. And because prayer is really nothing else than drawing near to God. And when we do that, we cannot but worship. And if our prayer, friends, does not come from a posture of worship, well, it's not really prayer, is it? It's more of a wish, if anything. So as we approach God in our worshipful prayer, God's an- God answers us as he's answered them. What an incredibly privilege. What an incredible privilege, friends. Right? Who are we that the Lord of the universe would be mindful of us and answer us? Now notice how he answered these men in a personal and intimate way in verse 7. It says that he spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. Now, what on earth was this pillar of cloud? Where if you read the Old Testament, you would know that this pillar of cloud would always appear when God was speaking to them in front of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, God's dwelling place that would later be made permanent into the temple. What it's saying is that God has provided for us a sacred space where we can come to him. And he is there and he will speak to us and he will answer us. God is the one, God, who actually listens and who actually guides his people. Because God, it also says there, gave them his testimonies and statutes for them to keep. God answers us with his words, with his laws and his promises to keep us from straying and going off and destroying ourselves. Now, Moses and Aaron, it says, did that for the most part. But they were far from perfect people. And verse 8 acknowledges that. If we recall the lives of Moses and Aaron, Moses was a murderer. He disobeyed God by striking the rock too. And Aaron also messed up royally and caving to the pressure of the people by creating this golden calf idol for them to worship while Moses was gone. Samuel committed collusion by appointing his sons who did not follow the Lord as judges over Israel, when it was actually God's right to appoint. And how did God deal with them? It says he was forgiven to them, but at the same time, an avenger of their wrongdoings. You see, friends, God is indeed patient and merciful with us and is certainly willing to pardon us for our sins, but this doesn't mean that our sin is without consequences. And often these consequences are suffered beyond ourselves. They're bigger than ourselves. Moses' sin disqualified him from entering the promised land. Aaron's sin brought a plague upon the people of Israel. Samuel's sin perverted justice in Israel and his sons died. So sin is a serious issue with further reaching consequences than what we could imagine. And just because we are in God's favor, because we are among those who call upon the name of the Lord, does not mean that God will not avenge our wrongdoings. 
Yet because God is first forgiving, he has already taken care of the true penalty for our sin, death. And as we preach here every single week that he did that by becoming human and taking our place on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, so that in every consequence we suffer for our sins, it is always in the background of forgiveness. That in every consequence, God isn't trying to condemn us, but to chastise us as his sons. These acts of discipline are from a loving father to save us from ourselves, from our own immaturity. That we may learn to obey from the heart, to keep his testimonies and statutes, because it is through them we can hold to what is truly life. See, because God has already saved us from our ultimate punishment, every act of God towards his people is a saving act, even the most painful disciplinary ones. They are not acts of judgment, but acts of salvation. Amen. You see, the Lord is not only a God who is far above us, not only a God who does mighty things for us and rules us justly, but he is a God who comes on our level and works with us intimately. With all our flaws, with all our limitations, with our wandering hearts and often hardening minds, he commits to us as his people. Right? And Calvin's metaphor for this is like this nanny who's whispering in the ear of an infant to make him understand. God condescends to our level. And praise be to God. Now, although we don't have a tabernacle or a temple anymore, like Moses, Aaron, and Samuel did to meet the Lord, it does not mean that we cannot have the same level of intimate relationship as they did. Because, actually, the presence of God has appeared to us in a much clearer way than a pillar of smoke. In fact, John 1 says that the Word of God became flesh and made his dwelling. In Greek, it's like he made his tent, his tabernacle among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And since Jesus Christ is now seated in heaven after he's been risen from the dead, the Spirit of Christ is already sent to us, such that the New Testament talks about our own bodies as a temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. We are a walking tabernacle. So in these last days, friends, the King of creation still speaks to us, but now through the Son, by sending His Holy Spirit, who will teach us all things and will bring to remembrance all that Christ has taught us, all of God's statutes and commandments that we've learned. So we too can worship the God of the nations, the God of creation, this holy God, intimately, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that is risen from the grave, then we are saved. God has put his Holy Spirit in us and he will answer and guide us to come to him. So brothers and sisters, let us do what verse 9 encourages us to, to worship the Lord our God, to come before his holy mountain, to come before uh, God's presence, to come where his people gather and let's worship him intimately because he is our God, the Lord who deserves all reverence above all creation, mighty and awesome in power. 
to revere him. He is our king who acts in justice and righteousness, taking up the cause of the oppressed while punishing evil. So follow him. And he is the Emmanuel, God with us, the only God who is willing to condescend to our level to personally work with us and be our rock. So love him. Truly, there is none other like our God. He is holy. There is none beside him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for how, although you are seated far above us and has no business doing anything for us, or in fact, because of our sins, we should perish. You come down and work with us. But for some reason, you chose us as your people. They are, uh, we are willing to follow you. Father, I pray, Lord, that you can continuously remind us of how great of a privilege this is. Remind us your heart for your people and how you want us to treat each other in righteousness and justice. And always be fed and be refreshed when we know that you are not just uh, a God of the nations, but you are the God who has chosen to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.